absolutely comfortable with stress. Like I just don't get stressed in um, chaotic situations. Like the dopamine that you get from stress for situations is just a glorious buzz of wonderfulness. If you're willing to be vulnerable um, and share your weaknesses, I think you're less likely to behave in a way that's contradictory to the outward version you're showing of yourself. The general rule for me is just flexibility in how people work, where people work, and when people work. That is it. Hello, my dear Naked community. It's Vladi, or as I'm trying to now own my full name, Vladimira. But that's for another story. Today, I'm here to bring you another Strong Naked episode. So stay with me for just a moment. Imagine a situation where your brain is always spinning. You simply cannot switch off. Impulsive actions are your daily bread. You are known as a risk taker. You thrive in chaos and find comfort in ambiguity. When you get curious, the time just flies by and passion and purpose are super important for you. So all of those traits naturally fits the description of an ideal entrepreneur. But hold on, because they also fit a description of a neurodivergent brain, specifically attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So Nectarius and I were curious about how ADHD impacts lives of entrepreneurs, how it impacts their emotional and mental well-being in the most positive, but of course, also the challenging ways. So what we have learned is that ADHD traits that are associated with the challenges mostly are the same ones that we celebrate by successful entrepreneurs. So the big question for me was, should we even call it a disorder? I let you build your own perspective and answer. So for this conversation, we invited Sam, Sam Hanfield Jones. Sam is a serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and a big, big diversity and inclusion advocate. Most recently, Sam held the position of a CEO of a tech company, and currently he's enjoying his break. What is impressive about Sam is his absolute candor about his experience with ADHD as a human being, but most of all as an entrepreneur. Uh, we talked about how it manifests in his daily life while building a business, and about the vulnerable conversations he has had with his team. He also talks about the more dark moments, about loneliness, about fears, the dark thoughts, and yes, about isolation from the outside world that often might not understand you. I love this quote from Sam. I think we should all be our own magical version of weirdness. And if somebody doesn't like your weirdness, it's probably because they're just hiding their own. Beautiful. So we ask Sam what we can do to also build safe and inclusive environments for our team members who are living with ADHD. So let me invite you for this conversation and find your own answers. Here is Sam Hanfield-Jones on Naked Podcast. Enjoy. This is Naked by the Future Farm where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. Brought to you by Vladimir Kobrystinska and Nectarios Lolios. And remember to subscribe, follow and rate Naked to help us share it with the world. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hey, Sam. Hello. How are you doing? How, how are you? So before we talk, we usually we, we tell everybody always where we are. Where in the world are you right now? So I'm in uh, London, and that's where I live and kind of work and spend most of my time. And cool, you are lovely. not in London, Nectarius. No, I'm in Athens today. Mm -hmm. I'm in a hotel room with wonky air conditioning and wonky internet. So I needed to de-grump myself a little bit before I got into this conversation. You look a little bit like you're in an IKEA flat pack box. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. think that will probably be the promotional quote for this hotel. This looks even more it. like Ikea, that side of the room. The other side of the room yeah. is nicer. But uh, you're right. <laughs> and Vladi, you're not in Pakistan for a change. For a change, I am calling in from Bratislava, which I am very happy about. It's It's been long overdue. And yeah, I think I was just um, 
sort of, or I am enjoying every, every minute of it. So again, three different cities. Mm. We're keeping our track high. It's anyway, we can talk about this for, for a long time. We sometimes are in the same country that is not our own country, but you still don't manage to meet. Um, but we are, we are functioning as a virtual team quite beautifully. Um, we're very happy that you're joining us today, Sam. Super excited about our conversation. Uh, for context, Sam and I met on LinkedIn, on the internet. Uh, we met because of uh, a conversation we were having about community-driven fintech companies, um, because we shared the same view and we had some interesting things. It turns out we had some interesting things to discuss. Um, but when we met, there was such a big gap between the very first contact that I'd forgotten about the community fintech thing because the day before you and I went on this long walk, Sam, you had published an article about uh, your mental health, but also you as a leader uh, with a condition on the neurodiversity spectrum. So I instantly just associated our conversation with the future farm. And I, I said something along those lines and you just gave me a bit of a look. Uh, and you were like, no, it's about data. I said, oh, okay, let's just take a step back. So the two things come beautifully together. So we ultimately have a lot to talk about. But uh, maybe before we go there, you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, cool. I, I, it's funny. I think it's still weird to say you met on the internet, I think. It was definitely weird 20 years ago. It's still a little bit weird now. But I did a lot of it. Um, so thank you for being my friend on the internet. <laughs> um, okay, so what am I? Who am I? Um, I'm Sam. And right now, I'm probably spending most of my time uh, investing in early stage, predominantly fintech, but also diversity and talent businesses, really early stage. Um, but pr prior to that, I spent three years uh, running a business called Seckle, uh, which is an API infrastructure play in the wealth management space, kind of thing, Stripe for, for wealth management. Anyone can get access to investments, pensions, and all that good stuff. Um, but I guess the, the kind of the context for this conversation is, you know, the, the ADHD, which is something I've got for those who listening who don't know what it is, attention deficit, hyperactivity, disorder, you know, lots of good words in there like, you know, disorder and uh, deficit. The, the probably the simplest way to explain it is not so much that you can't concentrate, it's that you are less effective at allocating your units of concentration to specific areas. Mm. So, you know, a simplistic task that, um, you know, people just think you're lazy because you're not doing, almost impossible to focus on something exponentially more complicated and exciting you can focus on that deeply for 12 hours straight and not eat sleep or blink so it's you know there's a bit of a misconception around what it is and and really my career was kind of probably three stages the first one was going i have no clue what i want to do so i'm going to just try everything um and then the probably the middle bit was working in my first time working in early stage companies or fast growing companies and that phase is very much fixing all the problems that fall through the gaps in a fast-growing business so it's you know firefighting it's spotting problems that no one's solving it's spotting imminent problems that no one's thinking about and despite having no real expertise in any of those areas because you're the only one who's willing to stick your hand up and fix it you get mm. to fix it and again there are lots of links back to adhd and, and why why that happens and, and how that defines me as a person um but it was very successful for me because if you're in a fast-growing company and you solve a shitload of problems for people, people go, oh, brilliant, you're solving problems, let's give you more stuff to solve. The reality is most people stick to their lane quite a lot. Um, they stick to their area of expertise because it's safe, it's comfortable. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, safe and comfort just kind of make me feel ill. And so, you know, jumping into new stuff where I have no right to be there because I have no actual defined skill sets in that problem, very exciting because I can concentrate on it for 12 hours and get pretty good pretty quick. Um, and then the third stage was probably transitioning to leading teams, building teams, building products, building companies. And, you know, if your predominant skill set is chaos management and, uh, you know, crisis enjoyment, um, you're probably not going to translate to the best CEO. You know, your job as a, as a CEO is to make sure that the amount of crises are minimized and you probably shouldn't be involved in them. And if you are, you've probably got the wrong teams in place, the wrong structures in place. And so, you know, learning how to operate 
when my you know the way of working was one of multitasking crisis management um, and trying to get the same stimulation but from a different way of working and making sure that my own desire for chaos and and crisis um, didn't translate into you know unnecessary crisis crisis and uh, chaos within the businesses and products that I was working so they're kind of the three steps in my career all of which kind of fundamentally based on how I work think operate and behave I'm smiling because Sam I I feel like you just you just built the most brilliant description of the excellent advert for what an entrepreneur is how we define success, successful entrepreneurship traits everything from problem solving curiosity I mean ambiguity being okay with ambiguity navigating chaos and you started also beautifully and I had I was sharing this with Nectarius so I before the call when I was doing the research I went on Google and put the ADHD into Google so that was the first blast it was everything you said disorder problem negative the, the the language was super negative super polarized nearly to the level that it felt a little disturbing to somebody like me who is like I, I just wanted to learn a little bit about it and then I put ADHD and entrepreneurship into the Google. And there was a billion of articles that was in some way trying to position, like exploring the relationship. And I'm sure we'll go deeper into this, but there was, I felt like there was that sort of effort to say ADHD disorder, one box, but in entrepreneurship, it's a superpower. And it's like, and starting positioning it. And I was like, whilst I was like, Yes, thank you. Like, yes, we can look at it as a maybe superpower in entrepreneurship and let's explore it. I was still dis disturbed by the first part. So I was like, <laughs> seriously, like, um, why are we using this polarized negative language? So all that said, um, maybe my first question to you is, how was the learning experience for you when you learned that you the ADHD is part of your life that as we would say you are diagnosed but I feel already there to say diagnose is like it has for a lot of people that already triggers some thoughts like oh something is wrong but so how was that learning experience for you like at the beginning yeah I mean and it's like that well, you know at the beginning it's still ongoing right and I think you know there's so much complexity in everything and it, everyone's always said you know so humans in general like to put things in boxes you know because yeah. it makes us makes the world easier to kind of get our small little heads around um but you know i think it's a continuous and ongoing experience and the even these you know chatting on a podcast like this right is a useful introspective experience that as someone with adhd you rarely find 45 mm. minutes to sit down and reflect on a specific topic that is only ironically peripherally interesting to me um but no my story probably started out as you know just typical like real pain in the ass kid like I'd, oh we go to tesco's I'm like, oh where's sam it's like, oh he's in the freezer and I, I why are you in the oh, i don't know i thought i'd try it out and so i'm just like you know six years old and in the peas or you know go, go to your grandma's house and oh where's sam oh he's uh he's throwing rocks at the windows to see what happens when rocks touch windows and, and they break uh, and he learned that today and so you know it's just for my mum for me, I was having a whale of a time. I'm in the freezer. I'm chucking rocks at things. This is great. I love it. But for any parent, you're just like, I've got to take mm. him out again. Oh, my God. What's he going to do now? And that kind of manifested itself mm. to school, probably predictably, getting in trouble. Now, I wasn't, wasn't you know, um, you know, particularly, I wasn't being, you know, the things I did weren't evil, but it was disruptive, right? jumping on things I shouldn't, getting on things I shouldn't, encouraging others to do the things that I found fun. And, you know, being being labelled as um, a bad influence was a big part of my childhood because, you know, doing something naughty is fun. Doing it with other people is exponentially more fun. Um, and so, you know, with all of that, you can't concentrate in class, you fidget, you get distracted, you're called a distraction. Um, mm. you, you know, you, you get sent to child psych psych, uh, psych uh, therapists and, and psychologists. And, you know, you go through this process and someone goes, okay, you've got ADHD. And my mum at the time was training to be a child psychologist because of just how difficult I was, which to me was like fundamentally, you know, beneficial and supportive things throughout my 
life and childhood was that having a parent who educated themselves on child psychological development and was able to create a counterbalance to the to the narrative that you get from schools and doctors and things is quite important right there's a positive slant to it which if you don't have that and that's very unusual right if you don't have that you probably get hammered by pretty low self-esteem over time yeah and I've never really felt that myself and I know lots of people with ADHD or other conditions that are non-typical and make you feel like you don't fit in um really do damage your self-esteem so I, I, there's a little bit of that but way less than, than than you would expect so I went through the process Ritalin is what's prescribed for, for disruptive mm. children and it's effectively an amphetamine that stimulates a part of your brain to do with dopamine reception so uh, ironically someone's hyperactive you wouldn't think uh, an amphetamine would be the thing to give a 13 year old boy but it stimulates a certain part of your brain to do with norepinephrine which is um one of the neurotransmitters associated with dopamine so it means you get your dopamine so again for anyone listening that doesn't know adhd quite simply is you don't get enough dopamine so you're constantly looking for additional stimulation and that can be from your environment around you Mm. definitely not going to come from two hours of geography and it then you know manifests in the real world as there's quite a lot of addictive and impulsive behavior it's driving cars too fast drinking drugs um reckless relationship type behavior um often other kind of manifestations of that risk-taking and dopamine-seeking behavior. Um, and I did it, I took I took Ritalin for maybe, I don't know, I think somewhere between six and 12 months. And I kind of went from like below average in school. I remember I was like top of some classes, maths and physics particularly. Um, and mum could take me to Tesco's and she'd be like, where's Sam? And they'd be like, he's just pushing the trolley behind you. Brilliant. It's not in the freezer anymore. And so it worked. And, and um, I remember I was, yeah, I was about 13, 14, and I was in class, and I looked behind, and some of my friends were just playing around behind me, and I was actually taking notes on German. I fucking hated German. I don't know what I was just, I felt like I was um, in cotton wool a little bit, like mm. dulled down, and so not not myself. And so I went, I think I went home that day and then refused to take it ever again, and I've never taken it since, and that's 20 years ago. Although I have gone through processes over the last five, six, seven years of trying to go back into the system to get prescribed again where I felt particularly distractible and um, it's actually quite hard to go back in and then I get distracted and do something else um, so yeah that was the kind of the first point and the realization that the medication wasn't for me because it wasn't it changed me into someone that I wasn't happy being um, I don't know how normal that is that sounds a bit weird when you say it out loud uh, and then probably throughout the work career again it was the three stages first stage in my you know late teens early 20s ADHD wasn't even a thing I even thought about and but I jumped from career to career to career and tried this and tried that and there are little stories from back then that kind of you know when you reflect and I was thinking about this for the podcast in my first job in an audit firm one of the feedback pieces I got from a manager who I never particularly liked but she said to me um you need to look more stressed because you've got loads of work on. And if you don't look stressed, people think you're not worrying about all the work you've got to That's do. That's horrific. I know, it's ridiculous. Seriously, you should be fired on the spot. Yes, well, perhaps, but it's normal, mm. right? If you see most people Is got it? too much work on. I don't well, so. it's, it's from a manager's perspective, mm. you're like, okay, so I'm, that person looks stressed. Okay, it's not good, but at least they know they've got the work. I'm just sat there going, like, duh, 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 duh. and she's like, do you know how much you've got to do or have you forgotten what you've got to do? Yeah, I see. Um, mm. but, but, you know, that's that's a massive piece, which is a, a thread throughout, which is oh, at, like, absolutely comfortable with stress. Like, I just don't get stressed in um, chaotic situations. Like, the dopamine that you get from stress for situations is just a glorious buzz of wonderfulness so in those in 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 those situations and in early stage companies where everything's fucked basically at the start um it's awesome and i feel happy um Mm -hmm. and so that was the first Mm -hmm. half second half was as i said you know finding myself in a fast-growing business which was not intentional at all and not proactive in any way shape or form but a nice coincidence and then finding that fast-growing companies create chaos behind them because they're growing fast and the people can't adapt and organizational structures often aren't uh, sufficient to adapt to growing you know revenue and customer numbers and the nature of a business and so it turned out that I was really good at that and it was probably only towards the end of that stage that I started reflecting on you know innovative thinking, organizational structure. How do you structure teams? How do you structure um, hiring to make sure you've got balance? You know, started looking at 
you know, behavior and psychological profiling, and you know, you're responsible for building high-performing teams, and you start looking at it, and 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 you know, and, and the interesting one getting to the end of this is uh, I was building teams, and I remember, have you ever done sixteen personalities? Yes. So, what what are you on a sixteen personalities? I think it was the ambassador. In, ambassador. Yeah, and there was another one. I think there were two. The other one I don't remember. Probably something with sales. Cool. Well, you, you're very ambassadorly. I, I agree mm. with that one. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I, I don't I got... take that as a compliment, though. That I, 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 I heard something in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, 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 I got the whole forty odd people to do it, something like that, mm. and about forty five percent were all the same type, which was my type, which was campaigner, which is mm. high energy, loves a bit of chaos. Love some storytelling, maybe not best at finishing all of these things they've started. And, you know, it was this moment, and that has shaped the next kind of four years, really, that one moment in how, you know, aggressive subconscious bias can be uh, in your hiring, in yeah, your yeah. team creation. And, you know, great, you know, society, I think, benefits from a handful of people who are like this. But if you fill a whole company with people like me, it's, it's just it's just madness it's, it's it's chaotic and it's chaotic squared cubed quadrupled um and you know the the going through that process of leading teams managing teams and then ultimately becoming kind of a ceo of a business um spent a lot of time thinking about how can you avoid that what tools and off-the-shelf services and ways of working um you can use to to ensure there's balance in your team but by doing that you have to be. You have to face into the fact that most teams are super undiverse. There's lots of hidden diversity, um, and that includes neurodiversity. And I, I'm not more passionate about inclusivity around neurodiversity than anything else at all. I think I'm interested in all areas of it because um, for me, the excitement comes from thinking about how you can get a group of people together and they can create something that's more than the sum of its parts. And that's just you know people and what we've done for a million years, which is group mm. together and. Mm. build a fire and then decorate a cave and then you know build buildings create technology and build products on that technology you know so um that's the kind of that's the it, i'd say the long and short of it the long and long of it yeah, yeah. Mm. um you, you said something that i would like to dig a little bit deeper into um mm. because you, you talked about how growing up with this awareness that you have adhd or live with adhd means that it can lead to um uh, lead to low self-confidence, low self-esteem. Yeah. You were lucky not to grow up with that baggage. Um, so at the moment, if I listen to you, the last 10 minutes that you spoke, which is really fascinating by the way, so normally we talk here, we just throw something and you just come back with this rich material. We just go, okay, this is interesting. Keep going, keep going. Um, I can't imagine it all being just nice. Uh, and positive because it's you may not have had any issues with your own kind of awareness and self-confidence but a lot of it is also how people respond to your behaviors and your mom has been mm. supportive but who knows how the people around you um kind of respond so how has it been throughout the different stages as you described with the awareness of who you are and what ritual industry and all the other stuff how do people respond to this behavior because it's not necessarily obvious that people recognize that your way of being is as valid because it's atypical in inverted commas. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I can. Um, and I think you know, if I split it into two, loosely, ch childhood as an experience was, you know, I grew up in Wiltshire and Dorset. And so I had this world around me that could satisfy my curiosity, you know, whether it's setting fires to things, climbing in rivers, catching fish, building dens, making traps, you know, all of this stuff, which is amazing. And, you know, very enjoyable. You know, I obviously was a bit weird and a bit different. And, you know, there are, you know, I remember one, probably the only negative, like genuinely the only negative memory I have, I was at a party and I remember some of the other kids telling me that I was weird. So I went and sat with the cat and stroked it and said, I'm not weird, they're weird. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Good. I don't know. Good. Yeah. And then the cat walked off. <laughs> Genuinely. The guy's like, no, I'm out, mate. I'm out. I'm done. Seriously, um, I feel I want to hug that song at that moment. So, you know, all those. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not sad. It's, it's how the world is effed up, you know, like the, 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 the words. I mean, we are in all of it, but 
Yeah, yeah. sorry. I've tr- I, I tried to reclaim the word weird. So I think mm. weird is a, you know, we should all be our own magical weird. versions of yeah, weirdness. Like that. that, you know, and if someone doesn't like your weirdness, then they're probably just hiding their own, you know, and, and they're, they're not happy in themselves and they're conforming to a certain way of being and doing that they haven't been able to shrug off yet. So, you know, I don't see it negatively against others at all. Um, you know, I feel lucky that I'm at a place where I can reflect on these things and, and feel positive about, you know, who I am and being weird. And you know, um, it's good. In terms of the workplace environment, I think, you know, it's it's those little, like those moments, right, around um, just little behavioural things, messiness, being not being stressed enough when we're busy at work, um, r- rallying against organizational structure and process that made no sense to me, mm. um, you know, challenging the status quo. All, all of those things come with a certain element of career kind of risk. And I, you know, I, I was conscious and did proactively make sure that through most of my 20s and early 30s, I always thought, and I probably thought this thought every week for years, was I need to keep my expenses low because the way I do things and behave is I might lose my job. You know, and I always wanted to make sure I didn't have big overheads. I didn't, mm. you know, as, as you move up and get successful and I didn't spend it on watches and, you know, expensive things and lots of debt and large monthly payments and whatnot. And I, to the extent that I actually, I, I, I bought a flat with my little brother. It was our first property. We got it together and I clubbed our credit cards and managed to get a deposit. And and um, we moved it onto interest only so that the monthly payment was even smaller. So proactively structuring your financial affairs to minimise your monthly exposure because you might lose your job by the things you do. Um, so that's kind of, conscious which I guess is unusual mm-hmm. um but it was also you know I, I I was conscious that you know in order to make progress you kind of have to break down constraints of status quo you know it, ultimately change only happens by doing things differently almost every business is designed to do things the same repetition process order control is the you know is the raison d'etre of most people as they come in as companies grow, they attract more corporate types, more, um, I guess, left brain thinkers who are more process oriented, who, who restrict change even more, more process, more, more um, control. And so if you want to do new things, you just kind of have to break away from that. You have to get outside of it. You have to do things differently. And um, sometimes that involves, you know, getting in trouble. Now, I was incredibly lucky in that uh, I've had a few, there have been a few downs in there like made mistakes because moving too fast and got dinged for it or were financially kind of clipped for it but for the most part I learned that in organizations that are entrepreneurial by nature or have aspirational growth oriented managers owners leaders um, they find that behavior amazing because they get so frustrated with how clunky and slow the thing that they have built has become um if you have corporate managers leading businesses as in people who haven't grown it themselves have been appointed they they don't really resonate in the same way so the businesses Mm -hmm. that i worked at where that behavior worked really well were companies where the founders were still operating it Um, and that that makes a massive difference i think coming back to you know superpower Mm. you know i think there's a balance in all of this because it does cause problems in the normal world, right? So, you know, right now I'm not working. It's like a spinning top. I, I describe it as, I think myself as a spinning top. So a spinning top is only stable when it's going fast. As soon as it slows down, it starts wobbling and wobbling and eventually falls over. And ADHD is like that. Unless you have that momentum, all of this kind of noise can't be directed round and round and round in a circle. And so it just kind of drifts off. And so getting anything done becomes incredibly difficult. Um, focus becomes difficult because you don't have the momentum which comes from speed and dopamine being pumped into you all the time so it's a it's it's a it has a benefit but only in the right place so if i was working at lloyd's bank in a corporate credit team and i had to go through the same process over and over again to get a a, a loan completed I'd, i'd just it would just be the worst thing on earth i'd hate it so much but 
you know, doing a similar role, doing investments or working on new business ideas in a fast moving company suddenly becomes a very exciting experience. So I think we spend a lot of time as a society training and educating children on the types of career they should do, the vocation, the, the work, are you finance, are you marketing, are you sales, yeah. are you product, are you, are you doctor, are you accountant? And we spend very little time, and actually none, I've never seen anyone talk about it, go, okay, what stage of company should you be working at? Because if you're at a company that's 200 years old, there's going to be about 1% change a year. If you're working at a company that's six months old, there's going to be 98% change a year. That's going to work well for you. That isn't. And that conversation doesn't happen very much. Mm -hmm. I mean, it ultimately comes comes back to this is so interesting both of us are jumping in but it, it feels like it ultimately anyhow comes back to really knowing yourself and coming sort of starting the whole design process from there and then seeing okay what is what is available on the play for me right and I designed it not necessarily as a puzzle or a puzzle just for me not something like you said at the beginning as a box um the piece that is really interesting for me to, to talk to you about to ask you is you also for for some solid period of time you were a ceo you were leading a company and i'm curious how was that experience so i believe you mentioned that you were vocal about sort of you know your way of being and leadership and everything sort of big part of yourself like you vulnerably open up to your team how did that go? Like, how, how was your experience being a CEO whilst being Sam with all your weirdness and uniqueness? Yeah, so it probably, uh, b- b- before Sekul, where I was, uh, I, 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 I joined it very early, led the acquisition of it by Octopus, which was who I worked for at the time, doing lots of random stuff, and then joined to be joint CEO of the founder there. Before that, I led... Um, innovation teams and products building up in fintech so it's probably three plus two and a half so maybe five and a half six years of that and you know it's it started as subconscious like i share it's that's not a proactive strategic thing that i'm thinking about doing um and i think what i learned really quickly was the more and this is kind of my whole hypothesis around business and startups now. This is kind of the, the formulation and, and the end point where I think I am now is that, you know, I cared about innovation. And I cared about speed. I wanted people to move super fast and think creatively and come up with problems. Sorry, come up with, yeah, come up with problems. Yeah, come up with some problems for me to solve. Please, please, please. No, I come up with um, solutions that were not just doing what had always, always been done. And especially within a corporate, there's such a pressure to do, oh, that team's already doing that. That team's already doing that. That team's already doing that. Let's just do that. And so to, to break that down, you need speed and innovation. And, you know, I, I learned that tr- trust is the single thing there that, that matters, right? You can't move fast unless you trust that your team are with you. You know, if, you, if you're doing a, a relay, you know, a four by 400, four by 100 relay, um, they run at breakneck speed as fast as physically possible because they know the other person is going to be there where they said they'll be and they're competent enough to grab that battle and finish the leg in front of you. If you just turned up and did that, you'd be terrible because you don't trust that they'll be there at the right time. You don't trust that they'll hand over in the right way. You don't trust that they'll then take your work and take it on to the next level. Um, And so, you know, people only trust each other, I think, when they've shared vulnerabilities mm. you know to, to be weak in front of someone to be vulnerable in some time to someone is one of the hardest things to do and it engenders great loyalty and trust um partly because if you're willing to be vulnerable um and share your weaknesses i think you're less likely to behave in a way that's contradictory to the outward version you're showing of yourself so you are more consistent as an individual um and i think you know, also it gives people permission to be themselves as well, like be their own weird, you know, be their own unique weirdness. And as soon as you create culture or a platform where people can be themselves, they love it, right? Because they've spent years, maybe not outside of work, but maybe outside of work. You know, in some people's cases, work is the only place where they're truly themselves. Like imagine being the platform mm. that has created that. Um, it engenders great trust and loyalty. So uh, to, to the actual 
you know, the, the question on that. I think I shared because I wanted to. And then I started to learn that if I did it in a structured and purposeful way, it created a great sense of inclusivity within the organizations I worked within. And to my point around my hypothesis for businesses is if you have an inclusive culture, you have one that is more likely to be trust-based. And if you have trust, you can move fast. And if you can move fast, you can be innovative because innovation needs speed as well to get feedback loops going. So I think it was a funny one because it became therapeutic. I think uh, on, on our walk after meeting on the internet, um, you know, I was talking about how I stood up in front of 85 people and talked about mental health, my experiences with depression, my experiences with ADHD and, and Ritalin and, and all of these things. I've never once done it with my friends and my family. And so, you know, I'm basically mm. crowdsourcing therapy from 80 poor souls who happened to work in the company that I was leading at the time. Um, but yeah, so it was great. It was, I enjoyed it. I liked it. And it felt positive because talking about things invariably is a good thing. And that's why um, therapy exists, right? Mm. Um, and with one of the things we put in place was a business called Wellness Cloud, which if anyone runs a business or works in HR is listening, and they do on-demand anonymous therapy um, for businesses. So we put that in place after a particularly traumatic experience in our business. And, um, you know, then I, I wanted to proactively talk about therapy to encourage those who had never done it before to go and talk to people. And the only way to do that is to normalise it, right? Because it's still seen as weakness. It's still seen as, you know, a, a break in the armour. And, and so if I can sit there and talk about it, more likely that other people will be. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. You know, if the only thing that comes out of that is five people decide to go and chat to someone for an hour about how they're feeling about something, then that's, you know, then, 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 that's, then that's kind of worth it, really, isn't it? Um, but, yeah, so there's two sides to it. Um, my natural inclination to, to share and, and enjoy it and then the business benefits that I think you get from inclusive cultures. It all sounds very nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm still trying to look at the, the shadow of this um, yeah. because you talked about depression. And when you were talking earlier about the, the awareness, that you, I'm, I'm weird and that's fine. Um, I couldn't help feeling that this must also feel lonely at times. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try it. Let's, let's do some dark side, shall we? Um, I think yes is the answer. And the reason I, I reach out to other people that sound a bit weird on the internet is <laughs> for that reason, right? Um, most people are, I think, you know, underneath, but lots of people are kind of repressed. Repressed, is that the right word? In some way. And so don't really show their, their real selves. Mm. But having, you know, super honest, transparent, free-flowing, free-flowing, organic conversations with people is not actually that common and you don't it's not easy to find and so there's a little bit of that and so i've solved that over the years by just being you know really just yeah, reaching out to people and, and filling my days with conversations with people that kind of inspire me and engage and go wow that's amazing um, but it's probably only one in 20 people i meet or two in 20 people i meet that do that i mean the, the reality of adhd you know let's do let's do the dark side is you're five times more likely to be diagnosed with depression if you have adhd you are 10 times more likely to end up in prison if you have ADHD, but so it's about 25%, I think 26% of the prison population have been diagnosed with ADHD. Now there's some bias there because the testing is more thorough in prison than it is in the general population, but scientifically they think somewhere between three and 4% of the population have it, which, you know, if you think about it, it's still what, what is that? 2 million people? Mm quite a lot um but you know 10 times more likely to end up in prison five times more likely to to suffer from depression and i think again i my own personal experience of it and where the depression comes from is only marginally in the bit that we touched on feeling outside feeling like you've been excluded from school feeling that you're weird in your friendship group feeling that you can't concentrate Every, you know your self-worth if you can't complete some menial tasks in your kind of manual role that you've ended up in and you get fired from it uh you know of course you're going to end up in prison or or feeling like um you're a failure uh because you can't do the basic things that you know for my example it genuinely is the case that i've got a list on my phone 
I try not to use lists because I hate them, but a list of all of the really kind of boring stuff that I physically have to kind of like try incredibly hard to get around to. And it's not just, it's more than just being a bit lazy because I'm not lazy. I, I can work incredibly hard, but I just can't get to it. I just can't. Like it just isn't there. It's almost like an engine turning over and skipping mm. and skipping mm. and skipping. Um, so, you know, uh, on the... That's the kind of society, society thing, right? Society says you have to be able to concentrate on stuff, repeat stuff, and you get rewarded for it. Going to school, learn this, repeat it, rewarded. Go to university, learn this, repeat it, you're rewarded. Go to work, here's how work works. Here's how we've done it for 20 years. Repeat that consistently, you're rewarded. Now, ADHD isn't great with any of those things, frankly. Now, to my point, I never really felt like I suffered from that. I'm sure I've got... Un- unrecognized huge childhood trauma that I've just deeply deeply quashed down um, squashed down but the other side is when you know your brain is always worrying so you can't turn off right there's no point where you you just relax like your brain is always like this 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 um there's a uh there's a there's a joke there's an ADHD joke and I think it's like a uh, I've been suffering from um bad sleep and so I went to the doctor and he prescribed me uh, counting sheep and so I went home that first night and uh, one sheep two sheep three sheep cow doctor cloud swimming phone internet and I love it because it is actually how like the brain mm. ends up working doesn't matter if you're lying mm. in bed or sat here mm. or even in um I'll, I'll sit in a restaurant or a bar and I'll be concentrating on what the conversation is but I can hear and process all of the other conversations simultaneously so I can hear it all happening and and, and almost like to the extent that I've listened to you and concentrated with you, but I could pretty much jump into that conversation and have a crack at feeling like I've been in that conversation for the last quarter of an hour. So it's weird stuff like that. What that leads to is in periods of quiet and calm, you know, I certainly suffer from giant existential angst, right? Purpose of life, the world, you know, physics, um, Schrodinger's cat and and the unknowns of atomic sub-theory, you know the, the the pointlessness of much of what we do and the inherent fragility of life as we know it and our own lives inherently fragile and for years that freaked me out right i had huge fear of um death huge just fear of the pointlessness of life itself just felt so pointless all the time i was having fun in the micro but the, the macro is like this is just this is just mad. it doesn't make any sense none of this makes any sense it's ridiculous um and so you could probably easily see that you know spiraling into something much worse i think i started reading, this sounds like a self-help book doesn't it i started reading a lot about just buddhism and the mindset of it now i don't consider myself a buddhist but there are some really easy like switches that just happened in my brain and one of them from from buddhism in particular is that fragility point so you know I would worry about how fragile my relationships are, how fragile my family are, how fragile my health is, how fragile my existence on this planet is. And actually, the way the, the, the Buddhism presented it to me was actually the things that we as humans worship the most are the unique things, you know, unique moments, unique diamonds unique uniqueness is is something we see as beautiful and so you know reflecting on this moment like us three chatting that has the reason we're chatting is a thousand coincidences the chances of it happening are 0.0001% everything that's aligned for us to be here and this moment will never happen again it'll never happen in the way it is and that's fragile and that can either be terrifying which is how i used to feel about it or it can be totally beautiful and amazing which is if you then come into life and every day go this is unique, never happened again. I'm going to enjoy it and just love it. Um, and it really, really massively helped me, genuinely. Mm. Such a small, small switch, small trigger. But from feeling like the fragility was a, a floor that was crumbling beneath me, the fragility was this thing above me that you could reach for and go and find and, and enjoy because it's not going to be there again. And yes, you, you eventually drop off the mortal coil, but just enjoy all those beautiful, fragile experiences. Um, and that, that helped a lot. Um, and the other bit of Buddhism that I really liked was this kind of inherent um, transientness of all of our experiences in life. 
and all of our experiences are entirely unique to ourselves and you know it's almost like a metaverse of things happening all simultaneously um was something about nature as well so i spent a huge like i just spent three days sleeping in a shed in dorset fishing in a river for nine hours a day um the contrast of life and london and startups and people and podcasts and stories and bars and all of this amazingness that is fragile and unique and should be worshipped because it disappears in contrast to nature which is so permanent and still mm. and it's there day after day month after month year after mm. year. that tree's been there for 250 years um and it just settled me mm. That's, that's kind of how my experience of it, I think. Um, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And the, the reason I asked ultimately is also because we know that for our listeners who might be thinking, maybe there is something that I need to get out of this because I need to dig deeper myself. It's also good to hear how the negative experiences, the dark experiences might lead to an insight. And and and, and Vladi alluded to this earlier also, that, that thing about self-reflection, checking yourself is something that we've, over the two years that we've been doing the podcast now, we've really learned is that um, everybody who's going through a mental health journey at some point had to develop that practice of introspection and inquiry to be able to deal with it, right? And that openness that you have with yourself, that honesty you have with your peer group, your employees, etc. So I appreciate you sharing that. Hmm. No worries. Hmm. I think it's one of those things, isn't it? That life in the world is so absurd. It's so absurd. Don't, don't, like. don't even get me started. It's like, <laughs> seriously, like one of the things that I'm taking from this conversation is also, yeah. I'm trying not to let it grow into some sort of a big resentment, but I, I, I have this emotion, which is towards the wider world and wider system within which we operate, because like I'm listening to you and and, and the, the thing that is coming out is this binary definition of value assigning to things. Like we, we assign the positive value to behaviors and things and the negative. And it, it's just, just yesterday I was talking to a family member of mine and he's doing a sort of a fluid, they don't want to even call it genderless fashion. It's something that allows you to just be and pick things and define yourself. And I loved it so much. And it's interesting that it came to my mind while I was listening to you. And so that, that's the part is like you're, you, you said it, it's this uniqueness and, and having the weirdness as a, something we celebrate. Um, I have a question maybe that relates to that coming back to you as a leader, as an entrepreneur. So with all this self-awareness that you have and the experiences that you collected on the way, there might be people in your team that relate to your experience that might have ADHD. So mm. you made me think, even me, me as a founder, how do I think about designing the environment in my business so that they can actually thrive? Mm. To your point on, on the binary nature of things, mm. I think it is both the reason we're here if we have been unable as, as early humans to box stuff up into easily um, orderable binary outcomes, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to, to survive with the ambiguity, mm-hmm. but it's also the root cause of almost every conflict. If you think about arguments you've had or people you know you've had arguments or just politics, left, right. Polarized. Left, right, gender. Like, and people get so angry about stuff not being in the box. Like, actually, it's a bit of both. It's kind of great. It's in the middle. Someone can feel a little bit male, a little bit female. You can be a little bit left wing, be yep. a little right wing. Yep. And, and yet um, people get angry because I think they, it's scary. It's scary to, to accept that it's all grey and your boxes are made up and arbitrary mm. and simply mm. a mechanism to stop you going mad because the world's absurd. Um, to your actual question, <laughs> uh, I think the first thing is just, you know, that point around finding times. And there's lots of amazing hook points now, like Mental Health Awareness Week and, you know, um, Pride and all of these things are about celebrating and talking about groups that feel themselves outside of the inside whatever the inside is um and so there are opportunities to just talk about your own experiences and you know that vulnerability feels uncomfortable to start with but you get used to it and that allows other people and what i saw in in Seckle was this kind of cascading effect where people started doing things like one of the nicest ones was um someone started talking about their experience with losing their hearing 
early, early on in life and the challenges that, that created. And those challenges were simple as headsets, being allowed to get the right headset to help with your hearing without having to explain your problem. So that then comes down to your procurement policies and who are you signing off and how are you signing off the purchase of things. So, you know, just little things like up to a certain price, you can buy whatever you like, just as long as it's sensible. You don't have to go and explain your disabilities every time you want to get a new piece of kit to help you. So, you know, there's some really, really practical stuff. Are there any sort of tips for helping my team members or co-founders who might have ADHD to design their experience in a way that actually taps into their strengths rather than it would become a hurdle for them or blocker. That, that's probably the part that we're a little bit like, what, what can I do? Yes, yes. I, and I think if I, if I take that and change it slightly, I think with other neurodivergent conditions like um, autism and, and, and Asperger's, Um, there's a lot of stuff you can do around the flexibility of your working environment, you know, mm-hmm. sen- sensory overload. It's the thing with ADHD as well is, you know, open plan offices aren't always a great thing. Um, you need to be able to sit in a room quietly and remove all of that distraction because it stops you doing any work. Um, there, there are loads of resources. There are loads of people to follow. I, I can, sh- I can share um, who, who talk about this in more detail and with more expertise than I do. Um, The general rule for me is just flexibility in how people work, where people work and when people mm. work. That is it, really. And if you live by that and go, actually, we're going to be flexible how, where and when people work, the people that need to create environments that help them work, they learn themselves and they, they can find those resources. But unless they have a culture that allows, those, allows that flexibility, um, you'll never get people coming up and solving their own problems. The problem you have in all of this is there is no one size fits all. Yeah. You know, every, everyone's experience manifests in very different ways. Like ADHD is one part of me, of which there are another 99,999 that interact with the ADHD and create a unique experience yeah. for me. So as an example, um, I know lots of people with ADHD who do struggle with sensory overload. That is noise, sound, smell, and it just freaks them out. Um, I've never experienced that at all. I love sensory overload. I'll, I'll, I work best when sat in a cafe with everyone talking around me. I put on, you know, I love listening to like really aggressive metal when I'm trying to learn something. So it helps me concentrate. So I think the, there are things you can do, but the principles are operating flexibly as a business. So as people start going, okay, everyone needs to be in the office four days a week and, Um, there's certain ways of working we're enforcing on people, um, how people work and where people work. I think that that undermines a lot of the the the, the point around inclusivity and, and taking mm. it all the way back to my point at the start. I don't care more about neurodiversity than I do about any others, whether it's mums coming back to work, whether it's people with you know hearing issues sitting in noisy call centres, whether it's um, you know p- people with gender uh, identity challenges that feel like they have to come into work wearing engendered clothing. You know, it, do- it doesn't matter, right? As long as you start with that flexibility concept and they're kind of pillars of your culture, all of those groups will be helped by feeling like they can be themselves and still included. So I didn't specifically ask you your question, which is, you know, how do we lay out the desks and is there something we can do with the screen? There's so much stuff like that, but everyone manifests very differently. No, you, you, it was a beautiful answer. So I'm all good. My, my structured <laughs> brain is like, take the box. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I am working on something at the moment, which I'm doing this kind of angel investing, which is fun. Um, but you never really get to get stuck into anything. But you also, you learn a huge amount, I've learned a huge amount from like, you know, lots of next generation founders who are doing things way better than I would have done in many different ways. But the idea is effectively a super easy to use tool that allows any business to benchmark their diversity and inclusivity. Auto creates the content that you can share with boards, you can share all companies, you can share with customers, whatever. Um, allows businesses to rank themselves against peers and UK averages mm. or, or another country averages. And then I think we talked about it. And then finally, there's a marketplace to your point, which points you in the direction of the areas of these specific tools and ways of working yeah, that can help you. You know, if you're like, actually, we're really crap at this area or this is an area I'm passionate about, I want to get good at. 
it will be able to recommend that to you based mm. on um, the data you've provided. So I, I, yeah, I'm very passionate about um, creating company cultures that are more inclusive because I think everyone wins. I think society it wins, individuals win, businesses move faster. Um, more innovation happens. Um, I don't really think that happens. I think, I think we're reaching to the kind of, I think we're coming to the end of the allocated time. Okay, sure. yeah. um, I'll stop I, talking, sorry. <laughs> this was beautiful, and it's really wonderful to have Not somebody to who A, is very eloquent about it, but also a lot of food for thought, right? Mm. And it's, it's, mm. it's the thing that I'm enjoying in our conversation is the fact that you position your experience um, but you also take the macro lens and you also put it into a very different context. Um, mm. I wonder if there's a couple of words you can say to somebody who hasn't been diagnosed, and I'm doing the inverted commas for those who are listening, um, mm. and who's probably at this stage where they feel weird, but don't know why. Any Anything you can share from your experience? or Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I've had many people reach out to me with later life diagnosis of ADHD. And I have such empathy for it because I've always had it. It's not, it's defined me. To be labeled with it later on is kind of this like mind blowing thing mm. that kind of throws your whole identity just in another direction. So I guess I'll be conscious. I think I didn't mention it, but I, I self-medicated for years by smoking just a shed load of weed all the time because that spinning wheel wasn't going fast enough to be me engaged. So the only way to deal with that was to, to kind of just dull your senses by by getting high. And, you know, I think being aware of what behaviours of yours, ours, ones, that are driven by dopamine-seeking behaviour or to dull our senses so you know behavioral stuff relationship stuff reckless relationship stuff you know things like um, alcohol usage drug usage um, extreme sports so some of these are seen as positive right you know oh yeah i love base jumping every weekend oh yeah it's the only way i feel alive you know one scene is really bad one scene is cool they're both mm. coming from mm. you know bad dopamine regulation ultimately so i think you know it's important to reflect on a lot of the things that you do and, and act probably driven by it there are lots of adhd coaches out there now you know it's way more accepted than it was 20 years ago there's a lot of support network um i'd go on linkedin there are loads of people starting to talk about it you know posts about their experiences be like super transparent and vulnerable to 60,000 people on their on their linkedin following use the new social media um there's an amazing and hilarious dude on tiktok and instagram that does reels on his adhd experience and they kill me and i actually sometimes use them to explain because you said i'm eloquent this guy's like exponentially more eloquent and his videos are so good and so i use them when i've met people with adhd mm. or, or people have reached out mm. i sometimes send them those tiktoks because mm. you know the best content rises to the surface right uh, especially mm. in like social networks like that so yeah there's lots of support network out there but looking at unusual places tiktok is an all right place to go um there's no one right answer it's not a disorder well it is a disorder but don't see it as a disorder there are challenges that it creates but you can create a life around it that that amplifies the positives and, and minimizes the impact of the weaknesses but you know I, I ended up in a place that suited it organically to make changes in your 20s and 30s some 40s much harder but you can you can always make changes happen and um often there's happiness at the end of that change um same in businesses right those that don't change become obsolete um people need to change and adapt to their environment and, and their diagnosis hmm. thank you thank so you. much I, I i feel this was the terrorist said it was very very rich and insightful like I think just just the step that we did with the curiosity and approach it with that, mm. I felt like it somehow feels like a job well done. I'm not sure if I'm patting myself on the shoulder, but it just <laughs> it, it feels good that, you know, we hopefully the people who are listening also take that from it, that we didn't aim for labeling anything, but it was mm. really creating a space for you, Sam, to share. And I have to say the other thought that ran through my mind was like, did we like you know the podcast environment like i totally see you and hear you like everything you said about like you work be most i mean effective in a 
rush environment and, you know, having senses and I'm, and I'm looking at you and we designed this 45 minutes or 50 minutes for you to sit straight, be concentrated on one topic. And I'm like, how do we do this? So maybe yeah, she, you just, my, my legs under the table are like, exactly. yeah. So, well, yeah. thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, mm. yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. It's, it's, it's lovely to chat about it. Like I said, it's, 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 it's therapeutic and interesting. And, you know, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything about myself. Um, that's my journey. And yeah. You've been listening to Naked by the Future Farm, where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. To learn more about our work, sign up to our newsletter or visit thefuturefarm.co, where you can also apply to be a naked guest. And remember, subscribe, follow and rate Naked to help share it with the world.